Wow, what a year it has been, everybody. A, a tremendously challenging year for many people. 2020 was hard, and 2021 seemed to be an extension of that. Throughout this entire year, I have brought on people on this podcast from all walks of life, as I have on the prior several years, and uh, the guests are so diverse. They bring so much experience. They bring so much knowledge, and I am grateful to be able to share these people, these brilliant minds, these extraordinary people with you. I try to take something from each and every episode and give it back to whoever wants to listen, uh, whether it's finding value in, in business, uh, education, fitness, health, wellness, continued self-help, self-improvement journeys, or if you're just entertained. I hope that the Optimal Life podcast has given you some sense of joy and has given you something to lean on, something to learn from. Um, as we continue through 2021 and into 2022. That said, we wanted to put together some of the most memorable moments from the Optimal Life podcast of 2021. Without further ado, here they are. The Optimal Life. January 11th, episode 145 with Lindsay Walters, ALS and its devastating impact. So would you guys like look at each other when he walks away and be like, he's walking with the limp, like whispering to you, like what's going, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's it's a hard, I can't really, I don't know how to put this into words, but someone that is such a rock in your family, when you notice that something is going on with them, you don't want to bring it up to them because you don't want them to know that you can see their weaknesses, you can see their vulnerability. And it was a hard place to be like, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Because then you're questioning his strength. And he's literally the strongest person in our family who's helped everyone, his sisters, his mom, his dad, you know, all of us, um, and was there for everyone, not even just our family. I mean, anyone in the community that needed him, he had friends, he'd help with side projects. So it was such an uncomfortable thing to say, hey, you know, is something wrong? Um, And I don't think he wanted to admit it either. Mm -hmm. You know, he's battling his own demons inside where he wants to be strong he wants to fight through it and i think a part of him kind of hoped that it would fix itself mm. what is this i've never heard of this in my life you know people get dementia people get alzheimer's people have cancer people you know uh, what is this i've never heard of it um and again I, let's backtrack a little bit here als is a is a neurological disease so what it does is it affects the firing of your neurons to your muscles so you lose your speech first uh, usually it's your speech and your swallowing that are first affected so you obviously those are muscles your throat is a muscle your tongue is a muscle and then it goes to walking and then it you know eventually deteriorates all the way down to your lungs um, and then at that point, you would need, you know, a ventilator and then a feeding tube. And at that point, you know, it's kind of an end of life situation. So typically they say three to five years. Some people live for decades. Some people live for months. There's just a big question mark there. And your dad's been living with it for over, it's been over five years since the diagnosis. Now. It's been seven. It's been seven. Yeah. Wow. And they told him three to five, and he's here seven years later. Which so. doesn't surprise me at all, <laughs> because he's just relentless. And I see him. You know, he's he won't stop. Some people will give in and submit. Imagine, you know, barely being able to lift your arm over your head, and you just have to sit there all day and think about all the things that you can't do mm. and all the things that you want to do. Or if there's something that falls on the floor, like a pill or the remote, 
you can't bend over and pick it up. Mm. I can't. It's so scary. Uh, everything in life, it's it's real, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't scare me to talk about it. Um, it doesn't make it easy to talk about, but it's it's a reality. So it's just, you know, again, a bunch of small wins really do add up in any way, shape, or form, whatever that is. Because you just, like, like you said, you just show up and yeah. you live it and you do it. Yeah. And you go about your business as best as you can. You don't complain about it. Uh, I think a lot of people, this would crumble people. So I think that there's, for the family around, the one that's dealing, the one that has the disease, for the loved ones around them, they have to be a t- strong unit. And so sometimes when my mom calls at 8 or 30 at night, I might not want to answer because I know it's going to be negative. But I just try and listen and then, again, find some reminder of something positive that's coming up or you know because unfortunately i mean everybody wants to live the perfect life everybody wants to have their parents till they're 80 something 90 something and it's just not a reality in all cases and if it's not als it could be something else or some parent gets paralyzed or they don't end up remembering you by the time they're 85. well listen looking back and looking forward one thing i can say about you is you'll Will not, you won't be able to say, I wish I could have done this more, or I wish I should have done this. You know, we always do that to ourselves. Right. We beat beat ourselves up. I should have spent more time with this person yep. when they're no longer. I feel that you have really, really given yourself a ton, a ton of yourself. So more than you could ever look back and say, I didn't spend enough time. I wasn't present. I wasn't there. You can never beat yourself up for that. And that was the biggest thing for me. I didn't want to, even to this day, I don't, I don't ever want to miss something. I don't, I don't, you know, I just, my, my parents and my dad sacrificed so much for me growing up. It's the least I can do to put a smile on his face and help take care of them. January 16th, episode 146 with Bob Krulish, living with bipolar disorder. When, when people are having these bouts of depression, I imagine that it's going to affect intimacy, sexual relation issues as well. And you just have no desire for anything, even that. You know, you just lose your desire for everything. And, um, and so it, it, can, it can, you know, play a role there. And it can be, um, you really need an understanding partner you know, you really need to, and anybody that I, you know, when people say, oh, I'm getting serious about my girlfriend, should I tell her about my bipolar? I'm like, absolutely, you gotta, you gotta bring her in on this. Um, you can't catch her by surprise. You know, when you're all of a sudden depressed and you don't want to do anything to do with her, you need to let her know that that's could possibly happen. And, and then you guys need to build systems to make sure that your relationship stays healthy that's, uh, even when you're going through that. That's a real interesting point because there's never the right time, I would imagine. It's like you don't want to scare somebody off potentially on the first date. But at the same point, you don't want right. to mislead somebody and you kind of want to be honest on what you know what they're getting into and there's ways to make this successful. But So, so what's your advice to people going through this? When is the right time? Well, I usually say it's right up to about where you think you might be able to fall in love with the person but you're not yet and hopefully it's not where they've already fallen in love with you that's the tricky part when you're when you have bipolar you have the genetic 
predisposition to, to become to, to have it activated but it but not only do you need the gene but you need to have some kind of life experience kind of activate it so a lot of people go through life with gene but they never get it activated what activated it for me was my dad left when I was 16 just in the middle of the night and never heard from him again and I took that very hard you you also have other symptoms that are not common among those other illnesses like you have a tremendous amount of impulsivity you spend money like it's water you invest in things that are have no chance in hell of really working you you start businesses that have no potential whatsoever um i was like i thought why can't other people fly i can fly why can't they fly and i would that would be a, a reasonable conversation to have it myself but why can't other people fly i never flew but i was sure i could you were sure that you could fly like superman like superman yeah just jump off of the building and fly I'm glad you never tested that theory out. You know, I'll tell you, though, it wouldn't have taken much for me to do it because I was so sure. That's what it is. You're so convinced. You're convinced that you made the $40,000. You're convinced you're going to be a senator. You're convinced you're going to be able, you can fly. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's, and there's really not much you can say to a person to dissuade them from any of these things. Very frustrating and lonely. Yes, it sounds like it. It sounds it sounds torturous, and I, especially when it's not treated like yours was. Wow. What what about suicide? Is suicide are suicidal thoughts common? People that uh, struggle with the illness. Yeah, suicide um, in bipolar. Um, uh, 50% or more will make one attempt on their life. Oh my God. And then about 10, 10 to 12% of the people with bipolar will die of suicide. And That's I'm in terrifying. that group of the 50%. So how did you, how did you, uh, how did you attempt it? Well, I I had a, a plan to, um, and it's kind of even hard to talk about, but, um, but my plan was to uh, be hit by a bus, actually. And I timed the bus every day in the town I lived in, in that cabin. And um, I, I waited for this bus that came from a very high hill, coming down a, a high hill. And clock in pretty good speed and I would know to the minute you know when that bus was flying by this part of the street and and I went there and stood at that spot and just at the last minute you know I changed my mind January 24th episode 149 with Kathy McDaniel seeing the afterlife so if it this, sounds kind of kooky, but that's the way it runs. It does. It does. It, it, so if this was a near-death experience, why was the first place that you went to hell? 
because I believe, and that took me many years to figure out, and with a lot of reading from other people who have had these dark, that's what they call them, dark near-death experiences, is that for myself, I planned it. I chose it, and I made my own hell. Uh, I believed as a Catholic that there was a purgatory and I'd have to burn my sins off when I died. And by golly, I wasn't disappointed. Um, I have also learned and believe with my whole heart that God is is unconditional love. He, God, he's not a he. God would never turn anyone away. God loves us no matter what we do. And we only uh, can condemn ourselves. So you had these preconceived notions. So when you are in the coma, do you know that your spirit is is leaving the body? I mean, are you able to like look down on yourself? What's what's happening physically? How does it feel? Well, there's all kinds of things that happen to people. That what you're referring to is an out of body experience. That usually happens with people in surgery when they stop their heart or something goes wrong, or they kind of float up to the ceiling and wander around. Uh, when you're in a coma, your body. Um, People may do other things. Nobody has the same experience. Everybody's, there's a few things that are similar, but everybody's is pretty much dependent on uh, their own personality, what they believe, and uh, mind uh, just manifested in this fashion. But are you looking at people and are they are they remorseful? Are they crying? Are they upset for the lives that they lived when they were living here and now they're now they're basically being punished? What are you seeing? I was seeing uh, situations that related to me. I couldn't really tell what other people were going through. I mean, I interacted with some people um, as I trod upon my path, uh, and a couple of them were living people, which is very unusual. Um, It turns out I had messages to give them, so I did that. And, of course, there's no good way to come up to someone that you know really well and say, say, I was in hell and saw you there. Uh, That doesn't go over real well. That's how, you, um, that's how you lose a friend very quickly, right? The, the, the demons are, a, are just a nasty lot. Oh, it, it just is so freeing to find other people who have died or have been on the other side and understand. It's, it's tough because your family never quite gets it. No, first, I um, after the last episode, I found myself in heaven. And there was just, it's like saying, how do you know you're in heaven? Uh, there's nothing like it. I mean, people talk about the, uh, the, the love and the joy and the exaltation and peace and happiness. It's just, there's nothing on earth to compare to it. If you took everything you ever enjoyed, you know, and, and took it, multiplied it by a really large number, it still would only scratch the surface. There's, there's no way to explain it. And then, uh, for me, I, I was only allowed to stay for a short time. I, I got to see my uh, former fiance, who was my best friend and, uh, who I'd been taking care of as a caregiver when he was going through leukemia prior to this, uh, I got run down, uh, after about eight months of day and night trauma and he died a month before I did, mm-hmm. but he stayed lucky ducky. Uh, so I got to see him and he looked so wonderful and healthy and younger and, uh, it, it was just delightful. I, I, I loved it and I was not there too very long. 
and to see this room full of of my relatives all yippy skippy welcoming me back and I was just back from heaven I was furious and it was really a good thing I couldn't talk I couldn't talk for about three days they put some device in my throat so I could sound like a robot talking after a while but uh, it took me about six months to accept the fact that I was back and that I was gonna have to get all this stuff done before I could go back to heaven Um, it was tough you called him a lucky ducky, so oh, was, boy. It, lucky ducky that he was that he was died and moved on to the heaven. Uh, so why was he a lucky ducky? He got to stay in heaven. He didn't come back. February first, episode one hundred and fifty-one with Bertie Lynn, overcoming sexual abuse in a childhood of turmoil. You know, being molested by my older sister. Um, I didn't come forward to my parents about that until my mid-20s. Um, and that was the one I was having nightmares about. You were ha- you were molested um, by your older sister. What age were you molested? I was molested at six. Six years old. I'm so sorry? You six years old. You were molested by your old... How old is your older sister? Oh, um, she was about... She had to be like eleven, twelve. When you say molested, what were mm-hmm. what were some of the horrific things that you were experiencing at that age? Things that people like she definitely touched me in in places that um, I did not want to be touched. I hadn't been touched. I was just six year old, six years old. So that's something that um, you know I went through and. When that's happening, do you, what what's the do you remember the feelings? What's going on in your head at, at such a young age? Do you remember those thoughts? Um, definitely feeling uh, confused, um, feeling as if um, um, angry, um, fighting it, <laughs> feeling confused, not knowing um, what to do, who to tell. You don't feel you don't want to share those moments here right now. Um, it's all new for me. Like my book just came out, so this is something that <laughs> it's, hard, um, it's hard to talk I'm about. Getting used to um, answering these types of questions, so it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to talk about. It is definitely hard to talk about. I mean, it's my life. Is this occurring regularly? Does this become part of your life growing up? What What's going on with that? It, it really did for about a year, uh, about a, almost a year and a half. It really did. Um, um, I'd say halfway into me being seven years old is when it when it stopped. You know, it, it just came to a stop altogether. Did so. you... Did she ever say things to you in that 18-month period, like, don't tell anybody, or this is between us, better not tell our parents? Oh, like, for what? sure. Yeah. Um, like, my father um, was already kind of physically abusive towards her, and um, it was so severe for me as a little girl to see him put her in chokehold and slap slap her in the face and and just all you know the abuse that she was enduring that I would see 
that I fe- I feared for her life when she did say that he would, you know, kill her. Um, like, you know, I can't tell. So, I mean, I believed it because look what I was looking at, you know, and I was just like, so it was kind of like I was almost protecting her as well. It was like, mm. I loved her as my sister. I didn't know why she was, you know, you know, doing these things. But at the same time, I, you know, I, I loved her as well to protect her from my father. February 10th, episode 153 with Cedric Bertelli, eliminating emotional triggers and anxieties from past trauma. Let's get to some of that then. What are some of the ways that Birdie or anyone else that's gone through something like that, how do they begin to integrate these emotions? Well, thank you for this question. Whatever happened in in, in the life of, um, of, of this woman or whatever trauma happened, happened. And there is nothing we can do about it, right? I mean, it's we cannot, we cannot heal trauma per se. The trauma happened. Now what we can do is helping to heal the wound of a trauma. Every time there is a re-trigger, let's say she, uh, she was abused, uh, I believe, in, in, in early, early, early years. Or later on, as a young adult, for example, when, when she feels the impact of the trauma in her life, that's when we can help her. So with my work, we never work on the original trauma. It's it's almost useless. There's nothing we can do there. We always work on the impact of the trauma today. In my life today, how is my trauma impacting me? Maybe I cannot watch some scenes of movies. Maybe I cannot be into intimate relationships, whatever it is. Or usually when we feel an emotional difficulty after a trauma, we do one or two things. Number one, we react or we control. So either way, we react out of what we feel in our body or we control what we feel. We try to control how we feel or we try to control what creates how we felt. Now, at the moment that we feel the impact of the trauma, that's when everything is triggered in the brain to resolve this impact. When we feel the physical sensations, when we realize that there is an impact, we watch a scene, as you said, or something else, we are triggered again, years after the trauma. When we feel the sensations in our body, when we feel the interoception, basically it's like a vortex in time. The physical sensation that you feel right there on your couch watching this movie, were some of the sensations that were felt at the moment that you were abused, for example. So literally, the physical sensation that we feel in our body even years after, the way I see it is literally like a vortex in time, taking us to the moment when we were, for example, abused. Now, the key when we feel this impact, when we feel the impact, let's say on our coach, to go back to your example, the key is to do nothing. The key is at that time to, so to speak, control your mind so you can put all your attention on the physical sensations that you're feeling right then. I'm sorry, Cedric, just because I... Control control your mind, so to speak. So you put your mind, you put all your attention on the physical sensations that you're feeling in your body. So you're feeling the impact of the trauma. You see a scene, you're triggered. Here, you do nothing. You close your eyes and you pay attention to your interoception. You pay attention to the physical sensations that is letting you know, that are letting you know that you're feeling triggered. Are, are you with me? Yes, okay. Yeah, so you 
you, you feel triggered, you close your eyes, you pay attention to the sensation. So now when you pay attention to the sensation, what's happening? You're becoming intimate, you're becoming, you, begin, you become to be in relationship with your emotions. So you're not going into memory, you're not trying to control yourself, you're not doing anything, you're just shifting your attention to how your emotion feel without the story, without the history. When you feel the reaction, you pay attention to two or three sensations in your body. And at that time, that's where it's really important. When you pay attention, it's just the first step. The next step is the most difficult for human being, which is you've got to do nothing. Mm. You've got to stay connected to your physical sensations and feel the sensations as they change in your body. Your physical sensation, your interoception, is not going to stay static. The sensations are going to change, to transform in your body. And while this is happening, you don't want to do anything. The sensations might become a bit intense, but it's okay, it's completely safe. Those sensations are just archaic traces that were recorded by your body. So uh, what, you're, what you recommend, and this is proven in your practice, time and time again, somebody that's- Thousands. Thousands and thousands of times. Someone has a traumatic experience. There's a um, an emotional difficulty, and it's being triggered by uh, an event in today, you know, a current event. And the first thing you tell them to do is not fight it. Don't fight it. Accept it. Feel it. Close your eyes and let it be in tuned with whatever feeling, whether it's a heartbeat that's racing, anxiety, tingles, your foot's moving, whatever it is, right? I mean, let let it let it be and it, and you have to just accept this moment whether it's two seconds 40 seconds or 90 seconds whatever it is accept it now you're saying once you've truly accepted it and not fought it and not run away from it your body has now updated right. the, updated itself to not, the, this so, absolutely so, okay so you updated the prediction now uh, i um in order to be uh, to be useful to the audience, it's when we say accept it, it's already cognitive. Like we don't want if you if you feel sensation, it's like I'm okay, I'm accepting it. It's it's so to speak, it's uh, it's counterproductive. We have to be um, we have to turn from human being to living being. What I mean is, you've got to feel like consciously what is happening in your body viscerally. I call that visceral somatic quieting viscerally what's going on shift your cognitive to feel and just feel without thought because thinking or saying i'm accepting is already controlling february 15th episode 154 with rabbi zushi greenberg the pursuit of happiness it takes takes effort to be upbeat it's much to be depressed doesn't take effort you just sit on the couch and you're depressed Mm. Doesn't have to, don't have to right. do anything. You wake up, you don't want to go out of bed. Finish. Don't have to do anything. To be depressed, to be negative, doesn't take, doesn't take effort. Do you think when people see the negativity on the news, especially when they're in a bad place, <laughs> it makes them feel good? When they they see other things that they're, does it make it them subconsciously feel like comfort? That knowing that there's maybe other people no, that are, are struggling? No, they're, they're happy when everybody else is suffering too. That, right, that's what I mean. Yeah, but they're not really happy. It just depresses them even more and more They're and not more. really happy, but they, there's a comfort knowing that maybe... Yeah, everybody not, else not, is suffering. Right, there's other people struggling yes, even just worse than I am. Even worse than I, yeah. 
and why it's not it's not, not only me but it takes effort to be optimistic it's they it takes effort to be happy comparison is the thief of joy one of my favorite quotes of all time by Thomas uh, Theodore Roosevelt comparison is the thief of joy that's kind of what we're t- saying here because when you have you're comparing your situation to somebody else's it takes away from maybe some maybe your situation is good right you, th- you don't have to be in a bad situation to still feel maybe not so great about yourself because you're comparing your your medical student son you're comparing the fact that oh he didn't get into Harvard though my buddy's son got into Harvard but your son just got into University of Michigan Ann Arbor but he didn't get into the Ivy League you, you know what I mean sure so your situation could still be very good amazing and amazing and still not good enough and still st- you shouldn't be happy and you're still stripped of your happiness because Absolutely. of the comparison that's what happens usually we compare ourselves to people who are more successful than us not to people who are less successful than us and people think they will have pleasures they will be more happy money money cars travel and they will and material then, things material, and then sometimes it gets into addictions alcohol drugs the problem with these things, it's never enough. Mm. It drugs, it's good for the time that you did. An hour later, you want it again. Two hours later, again. And the same thing with alcohol, it's never enough. Pleasures are never enough. Then it's good to have pleasures, as long as you can control the pleasure. The moment the pleasure controls you, you're in trouble. Because you're always looking at more and more and more and more more. You're trying to fill a you're cup ne- that not, you can't fill. You're right. It's unlimited. Correct. You know, it's a God, phantom. You say God is unlimited. Sometimes your desires, because we are created in the image of God, we can take it to good and to bad. So if you're having a bad day. Go out and do something good. It will make you feel good. It could be anything. It could be opening a car door for somebody. It could be helping someone helping. with their groceries get to the car, an, old, an elderly person, right? It could be anything. It could be anything. Yeah, it's the most... Writing an email to somebody you didn't speak six months and a text message telling me, you know, I was just thinking about you. How are you doing? So what about somebody that you've had a falling out with and it's been six months or six years even? It's time to make up. And you know, because this is not only will make you feel better, when you have, when you have a grudge, it's like I heard it from a rabbi. He says, you, it's like holding a coal in your hand and being surprised why it's burning you. Uh, <laughs> you holding a, coal, a burning coal in a your hand. A burning coal in your hand and then and you're surprised. Wondering, and you're wondering why it hurts. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> February 24th, episode 156 with Daniel Gartenberg. Get better sleep. And then I look at my clock. Oh, there it is, 137. You know what I mean? It's like, it's very, not every single night, but quite often it's in that range. And I'm waking up maybe maybe uh, four hours, three and a half, four hours, four and a half. Yeah, so that's probably because your REM sleep is kicking in. So, like, um, sometimes what can happen is when you shift into the lighter stages of sleep later in the night, especially if you had a little stress during the day, this will happen to me personally, the dream will kick me up. Um, kick me awake if it's like a stress dream um, and I think part of the solution for that um, is you know one thing is to have a relaxation ritual before bed to sort of get yourself in the mood um, and so I mean, do you have something like that um, is is sex included or no <laughs> that's actually one of our playbook solutions <laughs> no I mean that, that definitely can help and there's actually some funny science showing that having an orgasm can help um, men in particular have deeper sleep um, then I should be sleeping like a baby every night Daniel 
March 1st, episode 158 with Sonia Frontera. Love yourself. But I found out really quickly that my husband was an abusive person. And I found myself trapped in a relationship that was not viable and in prison, not just because of the relationship itself, but the messages from society and my family and my church that, you know, divorce was not something that was accepted. It was more frowned upon. How did you discover... So, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm seeing here from what you've uh, shared with me. How did you discover within 24 hours of getting married that you were basically conned by a, a, by a psycho- psychologically abusive person? What happened? Oh, that was very painful. We were on the plane on our way to Mexico for a honeymoon, and he told me right then and there that everything was going to change. And he started insulting me and saying very offensive things about my family. So I knew right then and there that I had made a mistake, and I had no idea how I was was going to undo that mistake. Uh But something went wrong and had to be fixed. How long were you guys together prior to the marriage? Three years. You were together for three years. But what most people don't understand, and that's why I'm on a mission to get my story out there, is that very often you don't find these things out until after you get married because someone who is abusive very often waits until they feel that they're in control of you when they have the upper hand to then make their moves and reveal their true colors. And that's what happened to me, and it happens to a lot of people as well. Uh, you may have been able to catch some of those issues prior to saying I do? I don't think so. I really don't. I think it was a matter of, of feeling in control. You see, part of, of the grasp he had on me is the fact that I was Catholic, I'm still Catholic, the fact that I am Catholic and the Catholic Church frowns upon divorce and makes you a second-class citizen when you divorce. So he waited until that wedding was over. So less than 24 hours. You're in a relationship for three years. It's somewhat long distance. You guys aren't together every single day, but every weekend, essentially, you guys are together, and you talk every single day. And in your, how long does it take you until you fall in love with this man? It didn't take me long. It was love at first sight, actually. So you knew right away. You you know what? Mm -hmm. You were smitten. You were smitten right away, and, and if you felt a connection. Yes, we did have that connection, and it was very strong. Do you believe the con- right away? Do you believe that the connection, looking back, was authentic, or were you just completely manipulated from day one? No, the, the relationship was authentic. It was. And I, he just says to me, "Everything is going to change," and start saying things about my family, and you know, things like I and I, I really have erased the specific words out of my mind. So I couldn't tell you exactly what he said, other than everything's going to change. And him saying very vile things about my family and the expression in his face was absolutely vicious. That I will never forget. And how do you react to that? Oh, I cried on my way to Mexico. I mean, you had to be completely in, sh- I mean, completely in shock. You're like, we're going on our honeymoon. Why are you, t- are you asking him, like, is this for real? Like, what are you saying to him? I was so taken aback and so in dismay. I was speechless. The only thing I could do was sob. And he sees you crying and he just sits there reading his paper or whatever? What? Oh, I have no idea, but I suppose he was probably enjoying himself. Otherwise, why do you do something like that? So you guys go away to, you said, to Mexico? Yes. 
And uh, what's the, I mean, how do you handle the honeymoon? Is it, what is the experience? It was difficult. I just try to make the best of it, and I'm a survivor. You see, I'm, I, I can't just curl into a ball. I just try to, try to make the best of it. Was that hard for you to kind of just look at him and say, who the fuck are you? Like, what, what are you talking? This will never work if you're going to behave like that? Yeah, I never I never said something like that. But I, I'm more of, of, of a strategist than a thinker and try to analyze what's going on and how do I fix it. March 8th, episode 160 with Padma Gordon, Awakening Within. You're starting here because, it, like you said, the light goes on. It lets you. It paints a clearer picture, and it allows you to then uh, maybe accept the reality of the situation, so that you can begin improving yourself, healing, and realizing. Okay, I, I was covering up a lot of things uh, that why I thought was great, and I was comfortable and cozy. Well, maybe this relationship wasn't as. Uh, awesome as I thought it was and it allows that person to maybe start seeing their their partner's point of view as well does that happen absolutely I mean once you you kind of turn the lights on you know you're gonna see all of the dust bunnies in the corners mm -hmm. yours and your partners so then you can see all right well now we really are the lights are on we can see what's happening here what do we want to do about it? And are we both on board? Because in the best case scenario, and really the vision I have for relationship, and I'm talking about a monogamous, monogamous relationship, when you're in a couple with someone, one other person, you know, it's an evolutionary container. It helps you to grow. It supports you to blossom into the best version of yourself. You have to almost start training yourself. Like, uh -uh, don't do what you've always done. You have to be yes. super conscious, right? Like, don't swallow those words. I'm about to swallow. Oh, wait a second. I need to do something different. And it's probably one little tiny piece at a time. Like you said, it's not one huge change overnight. But I imagine exactly. that those, those types of little things will build on each other. That is exactly correct. And you laid it out so well. It's one incremental step at a time. And what you've described and what it's called and, you know, you broke it down. This is mindful awareness. Oh, I'm aware. I'm mindful. I'm conscious of what's going on. Is mindful awareness the same as awakening? And if not, what, what's the difference? Well, I would say that's such a, a good and very nuanced question. I mean, I would say for me, mindful awareness is... Um, is necessary for awakening. I mean, basically, awakening is being mindfully aware in each moment and then having your life be a series of sustained mindful moments that are arising one at a time because really there's only one moment at a time and here we are. One thing you can do is you can meditate each day. You can meditate every morning. That's really my top assignment for everyone that I work with and really if all of us in the world who are meditating even just a few minutes a day makes a huge difference because then you're setting the tone you're making space to um, practice mindful awareness if you have willingness I, I say that willingness is an evolutionary lubricant 
just makes it flow and go so quickly. Mm. If you're resistant, if you're hiding, if you're wrestling with it, no, I don't want to go there. It's too much. That's okay. It's just going to take longer. Willingness is an evolutionary lubricant. Uh, That's one of my favorite sayings of all time, and I've never heard it until now. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it just came one day. It came through the, the crafting of my book. That These is, things come out. That's, yeah, you, that's brilliant. So you, you, what you're saying is you need to feel. You need to just be. You need to be in the moment and whatever that is. Can you can you fully move on and be this best version of yourself? I don't like using that term because it's so generic and we, that's all you hear, be the best you. But can mm-hmm. you ever truly fully move on to be a willing and able and optimal partner to somebody if – you don't allow yourself to heal fully from a prior experience? I don't think so. March 12th, episode 161 with Jeremy Ryan Slate, Podcasting's Impact on Branding. So I think creators that are really going to use the podcast medium to create what people are looking for in the niches they're looking for it with have an incredible opportunity right now. Yeah, it's uh, very exciting. I didn't realize that there's that many inactive podcasts. So you're only talking about roughly 300,000, maybe a little bit more. Based yeah, and on the number, number maybe higher than, than 1.7 right now. That was the last number I had seen a couple months ago. So I'm, I've assumed by now it's you know it's grown. But only 18%. That's, that's a very low number to compete with. You know, give us a little bit more insight about the power of branding through podcasts. Well, I think you're giving people an opportunity to feel like they know you better than they ever could before. Because... They're spending so much time with you, and they're getting to know what you like, and talk to the people that you're interested in. Like, like that in itself is is a, is a is a, a cool concept, right? Like the people you're bringing on the show, you're giving people that are listening to you insight to people you're interested in. Like that's like that's like inception. That's kind of interesting to look at it that way. But there's there's so much different potential for people to to get to know you and build a relationship with you, like no other medium. And it's long form content. Like you're spending thirty minutes, forty minutes, an hour, whatever it may be, with people. Um, or if you're Joe Rogan, three to five hours, whatever it may be. So that's a lot of time, and you're not getting that in any other medium. You're not getting that on TV. You're not getting that on radio. So there's this real opportunity to become the go-to and get that mind share in people's minds where, where you just didn't have that before. And as I mentioned earlier, like the ability to niche down, like you can service you know, a market of a market of a market, and that's just not something you can do in any other place. So I think it's it's really interesting to get to become the go-to in front of the audience. You need to become the go-to of and be called, you know really build a relationship with them, like like no other medium. Yeah, it's int- because the the days of going on like a Jay Leno or one of these radio shows, they ask you the same damn four or five lousy questions. It's super <laughs> surfacey. It's super fluffy, you know. And then they and then you move on and you skate into the darkness, and then everyone's buying your movie, and you know, you, you know how this goes. Yeah, well, and, and, and even to the to the standpoint of too, like um, even what you can talk about on traditional TV, you can't. Like you know, like right. you watch a Joe Rogan podcast, they talk about some stuff that definitely isn't acceptable for television, but you learn a lot more about the people you're interested in. What do you think a guy like Rogan's pulling in? Well, we know the Spotify deal, but what's what's a top? Well, it's a hundred million dollar Spotify deal. I don't know to be honest with you. Other than that, like yeah. his, and at this point in time, like have you have you listened to his show since he's gone to Spotify? To be quite honest with you, only only a handful of times. I used to listen all the time. There are so many ad spots now too. I'm I'm curious what he charges for an ad spot because I know the, the one of the last episodes I listened to, he had Elon Musk back on. Right. They did five ads. 
and we're 15 minutes in the episode and I haven't heard anything yet. So <laughs> he's got to yeah. be doing pretty well with the number of ads and the companies he has repping him. I mean, what are some of the, for people that don't know, what are some of the top podcasters bringing in in revenue on a monthly or annual basis? Do you know? Well, I know the one I'm always looking at, because um, he actually publishes his numbers publicly, is John Lee Dumas. You know, and he's doing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month and, you know, a couple million bucks a year in terms of that. Um, but there's just not a lot of podcasters that promote, you know, what they're making in terms of revenue. For me, the main source of revenue is the agency. Like, our podcast helps us get seen and heard, and we have some great affiliate offers and things like that. But building our agency is our main revenue source. Well, yeah, that's uh, John Lee Dumas. That's I mean, These guys are pulling in millions of downloads per month, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because some of those bigger shows, like the number, it's you know we do we do like fifty thousand listens a month, which is decent, but like um, a lot of these bigger shows, they're doing in the millions, which that's intense. Hey man, fifty thousand—that's a nice number. That's a beautiful it's, number. It's a nice number. We'd like it to be bigger, but we're continually working on it. You know. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, and like you said, the, the, the sky's the limit. We're we're here, we're in you and I and other people that are in doing this right now. We're in at the early stage now. And if we continue to remain consistent and continue to provide value and really do it as a passion project, which is what I do it for, which is why you started in the first place, um, the sky's the limit. And people will continue to come along as long as you're being authentic and real. Well, and to your point about that, like, it's being consistent is really, really, really important. Like, how many people have you seen that sort of podcast and 10 episodes in, they're done? Right. Like, if you're going to do this right, commit to at least a year. Like, you really have to commit to at least a year. Um, to, to be able to really see some movement in the right direction, but most people aren't willing to do that. Why do you think most people give up after seven episodes or whatever the stat is? There was a South Park episode about 14 years ago now. I'm aging myself. Um, and it was when like people started first getting famous on YouTube. And uh, they talked about the, all the characters in the show were, were going to get famous on YouTube and they were going to get the magical internet money. And that's the same problem that people starting a podcast have. They're starting it for the wrong reason. Mm. They're not starting it to have great conversations. They're not starting it to enhance their positioning or promote their business. They're starting it because they think they're going to get it up to a certain point. They're going to sell advertising. And, you know, that's how they're going to do it. For most people, that just isn't the way. But if you know how to use it the right way, it's one of the best things you can ever do. But they just have the wrong idea and the wrong expectations. So that's why they quit. April 19th, episode 165 with Joshua Shea, Overcoming Porn Addiction. I became addicted the moment that I saw hardcore pornography for the first time. Um, and it was, I was 12 years old, um, an older cousin showed it to me, and I can't tell you exactly what was on the pages of those magazines, or even what the magazines were called, but I, re I remember getting this feeling of warmth come over me, and just peace and tranquility and in that moment I realized that I had found something special I, I, I guess that just realized that I had found the answer to something I didn't know what the question was I didn't know what the problem was I found the answer to something I was absolutely um, I was just absolutely uh, beholden to these things these were my crutches when was your first intimate experience with a female uh consensual would have been uh, 14 or 15 but like most 
porn addicts, um, I had sexual abuse in my background. Um, the statistics are actually pretty sad when you look at them. Um, Dr. Patrick Carnes, who's kind of the godfather in the area of sex and porn addiction, um, he had a groundbreaking study this abuse or of men who were addicts, 70% or in the ballpark had suffered physical abuse, uh, around 80% had suffered sexual abuse, and over 90% suffered either emotional or mental abuse. So, you know, what, what does that abuse cause? That abuse causes trauma, and most of us develop these addictions to deal with trauma uh, in in unhealthy ways because we don't know how to deal with it in a in a healthy mental way. Some of that was nervousness, and over the years, I uh, got much much more comfortable with the real thing. But pornography is about control, or at least it was for me. And what what happened was that. I gave up my control when I was being abused as a little kid at, at a babysitter's house. And I think I told myself I would never be abused again. So when I got older, I was a bit of a control freak. I've always owned my own companies, that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't like answering to other people. And if you think about it with pornography, you never have to answer to the person on that computer screen or the person on that page. You never have to, you know, they never tell you to take the trash out. They never tell you you're not doing a good enough job at, at, at work. You know, they're not telling you that you're a bad father or a bad husband, you know. And if you don't like what you're looking at, you click the button and you get something else. And that next person can't say no to you because they're not real. And I think that for a lot of people who are addicts, um, that's what it's really about is that control and the high of that control. People need to recognize that pornography addiction doesn't take place between the legs. It takes place between the ears, like all other addiction. I try to get out there and tell people is that, you know, they need to recognize that sexuality and human sexuality is very different than just looking at pornography as an addict. Yeah, they're naked people. Yeah, there's sex but they are serving different masters. I looked at pornography because it calmed the storm of whatever was going on in my head. I, I had a wife, I had plenty of girlfriends. I don't, I don't lack at all for great, a great sex life or feeling like I, was, I missed out on something. I feel fine about that, but I needed that stuff to get through my days, especially the bad ones. I needed that stuff to largely function just like I just like I felt with alcohol and like my mind told me I needed both alcohol and pornography if I was going to function as a quote-unquote healthy person April 26th episode 166 with Nicole Guberman overcoming the effects of narcissistic abuse what's wrong with me there's something wrong with me mm. there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with you You've been programmed to believe something bad about yourself. When you start to feel bad about yourself based upon somebody else's behavior, that is a big problem. When you're in a, an intimate relationship with someone, you're not supposed to be feeling bad about yourself. You're supposed to be feeling good about yourself. The person that you're in an intimate relationship with is meant to show love and support. You know, they, they're there to lift you up. You know, they're not going to solve all your problems and, and you need to love yourself first. But the point of being in a relationship is to experience love and intimacy and connection. So if you're not experiencing those things, you're actually associating love with pain 
And that's the crux of the issue here, that when you start to feel that love is painful, that's a major problem, and that's something that needs to be totally rewired. May 3rd, episode 167 with Glenn Lundy, Breakfast with a Champion. Hopelessness then for me led to a deep state of depression, and depression led to suicidal thoughts and ultimately uh, an attempt on my own life. I tried to take my own life uh, clearly unsuccessfully. Wow. <laughs> oh, this would be a really crazy interview. How, how so did you try to do that? That season, what's that? How how did you try? What was the way you attempted to do that? Yeah, so I'm not a very good swimmer at all, and uh, there's this huge ocean <laughs> that I looked at every single day, and so one day I decided was going to be my last day, and as the beaches started to clear out, I went ahead and swam out and my thought process was I'll swim out as far as I can until I'm completely exhausted and tired and ultimately I won't be able to swim back there would be no way wow. I'd be able to make it back wow. and so I did That's I, I swam crazy. out and I swam and I swam and I swam man uh, what was crazy is after swimming out completely, completely exhausting myself and going under for what I thought was going to be the last time, my feet hit the ground. Popped up and was like, what is going on? And I look around and I'm basically back up on the beach. So I was trying to swim out as the tide was coming in. <laughs> and I was such a terrible swimmer that I couldn't even get out past the tide. That's and incredible. Luckily for me. Yeah, yeah. I would Go just ahead. say that that's just incredible that that was the way you wanted to end it. That seems like such a, uh, you know, suffocating, obviously drowning. What a painful way! And that was the way that you thought was the 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 least resistance, huh? You know, I didn't have a gun. I didn't have money. I couldn't get any pills. I didn't have any relationships. I didn't have any connections. You know, and it really was it really was the only option that I could see that I could make sense of at the time. I'm curious, before you continue on, you were talking about how before you ended up homeless and in jail, your style was to just feast or famine, basically. It was survival of the fittest, and if it was, if I could put one up uh, on this guy or, or, you know, pull a fast one uh, on somebody else, it's their problem. It's their fault for not catching on to this. Why do you think you employed that approach? What was going on in your life that led you to have that mindset? You know, I was reading, like, I read a lot of stuff about, like, early on, I didn't have any spiritual upbringing. I didn't really, I didn't believe in third dimension. I didn't believe it was mind, body, and spirit. I thought it was just mind and body. So being a student, I studied things like uh, Darwinism, and I, I, I watched programs about, uh, you know, Big Bang theories and so on and so forth. And so I just really had inundated myself with this belief system that it was go all in on self, go mm. all in on self. And if you could, you know, if you, that, that's how you win the game. Like that, 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 that was my mindset. Right. That's the way to win right. is to protect yourself, uh, give yourself the upper hand, give yourself the edge and there are no long-term consequences. You only have this one life, and, and then, then you go back into the ground, you know? And, uh, and, and and so I just kind of grew up that way, and I was around other people that acted in that way, too. 
You know, we fought. I used to fight people all the time. I thought that was a, a fun thing to do. We'd go out looking for fights. And and I never really robbed people, but I had no problem, like, uplifting or stealing. The people that I surrounded myself with, the media-type content that I consumed, it all pointed to puff your chest out, be big, be bad, be strong, and, and, and you can win, you know? It was wow. a really crazy mindset that I had back then. Wow, yeah, well, it's, it's almost like you're surrounded... You're surrounded in a paranoia type state where everyone's. If I don't act like this way, I'm going to be one of the victims of everyone else. While these guys continue to quote unquote win, even though as you realize nobody's winning. Look what happened to you in the long, you know, in a short period of time. Um, but as you were saying, uh, that was the way you were. It led you to homelessness, which again, uh, that was really powerful. How you said you're almost like a ghost. It's almost like you're not even alive. No people, doubt. people won't even look at you. May 10th, episode 168 with Allison Penna, A Bad Widow's Grieving Process. And so I just kept designing solutions for all the breakdowns that I kept running into. But, but let me ask I, you, why, why do you feel like somebody that says to you, how are you? Why do you feel like that they're, they're doing something wrong? Because it was not an answerable question. In your, in your mind? Well, I had a future with my husband, and then on four breaths, I didn't. But what, I had no idea who I was, as an I. Mm-hmm. I had been a we for 25 years. Okay. That is a long time. And so they were asking me something that hurt. And they didn't mean to hurt me. But if I didn't say something, they would keep going just because they didn't know. And I was always clear that everybody meant well, mm. that they cared. It wasn't a matter of that. Right. And who I was angry at, I was angry at Dave, my husband. Ooh, interesting. I would shout at him and say, you've got it easy. You don't have to figure out how to live on without you. You left me with all this baggage. You left me with all this craziness. Yeah. What would you have wanted them to ask you otherwise? Instead of how are you, what would have been the preferred question? How are you now? How are you today? Uh, in the moment. In the moment. In the present, there's no pain. I would sometimes say, don't touch me. Ooh. And for almost six months, Kisses caused panic attacks, full-on panic attacks. So it uh, it was complicated. You would be getting, you would be having a level of intimacy, not even anything crazy, and the kissing would start causing panic attack. I mean, what what do you mean when you say panic? To, what what would happen? I would start feeling sick. I would back up fast. I would push away. I mean, really a full-on panic attack. You couldn't breathe? Yeah. And you needed to, like, take a seat and just take a breath? One of those feelings? Like, the room's hot, the room's caving in on you? I had to just, you know, stop, stop. And, I mean, fortunately, the, the guy that I'm with was willing to be, as long as I was willing to keep pressing into my 
experience and my feelings, he was willing to hang in there with me. May 27th, episode 171 with Lori Hardacker. My horrible dating life. I'm not the only exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. And just to laugh, because if you don't laugh, you really like want to like cry or hibernate and never date again. What was... Give us an example of something raunchy that you included in the book. Um, let's see. It's like raunchy? Oh, yeah. The most the most raunchy thing you put in the book. Let's go right to it. You don't need to give every detail. You can leave some for the imagination. People will go buy the book. We'll link it up here in the show notes. But, yeah, yeah, tell us something. Do you want it to be my story or a story from one of my guy friends? Well, we want it to be your story. Oh, no, you're killing me here. All right. Well, I guess I might as well. I can very clearly remember this guy. And I don't know how raunchy it is, but, you know, when your family and friends are reading about your sex life, it does feel kind of raunchy. But um, I remember this guy that I dated, you know, we were having sex, and uh, and he came first, which probably should be a rule that, oh, that should never happen. wait a second. But, Lori, uh, I'm so and- sorry to hear that. That's... <laughs> That's freaking terrible. What a whim. So he was done. And I'm lying there, all horny, like, hello, hello, he's done. So, you know, and I, I literally write this in the book, thank God for electronic devices. That's just one story. I mean, I have some gross stories, too, about guys I've dated regarding there's a, there's a whole little section in the book about how I was a, uh, these guys' shit chauffeurs. Yeah, tell us about that. Okay, so I very clearly, like, remember this, too. Like, my brain, I met this guy from an internet date. We had a great, you know, first date. We ate in, like, a place like a Dave and Buster's or, like, game place. And so the, I lived in the city. I lived in Cambridge, which is near Boston. So the second date, and I invited to my apartment. Now, I had a car. He did not, which is fine. A lot of people in the city didn't have cars, so I'm cooking him dinner. So to make a long story short... He had to take a shit, Mm. right? So he literally came and told me, I am uncomfortable doing this in your apartment. Can you please take me to a place where I can go to the bathroom? (laughs) I was like, "Um, okay. So this story is in my book. So I literally took him, put him in my car. We drove through the city of Cambridge. I think the first public restroom I found was a Dunkin Donuts or a gas station and he didn't feel comfortable with that so I had to find him another one this guy so what happens he he, he goes inside he comes back out to your car obviously completely embarrassed I mean he's like like you know he just dropped off a few a few kids into the toilet <laughs> yeah he comes back this is your first date it was the second second date and you know what I yeah. know what you're gonna ask me and I cannot remember what my reaction was after that but i can tell you we never went on a third date (laughs) but he actually in my opinion made it even worse i that's what i said in my book i said what's more embarrassing pooping in somebody's apartment or telling someone you have to poop you can't do it in their apartment and can they please take you somewhere else yeah and then you drive around it's super uncomfortable and awkward he knows that you're going what the fuck is happening here You drop him off to Dunkin' Donuts or wherever you end up, and he's inside Dunkin' Donuts now sitting there going, she's in the car waiting for me. I should have fucking just taken a shit at her house. Like, what the hell's going on here? I mean... You would just say, dude, it's totally fine. You know what? I'll take a shit first. You happy? And that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I'm a meek family on either side. I I just wonder if you're living in a loop 
of some sort and don't necessarily fully realize it or appreciate it. And I'm not saying this as a knock. I'm saying this as, as potentially something that you've been doing because of your upbringing, your past, your environment, right. socioeconomic experience, you know, statuses, experiences. You being an entrepreneur, you're strong. You come from a, a strong-minded family. Your dad's got a temper. Uh, you've had some bad experiences. Your first ever love was abusive to you, so you, you shelled up and become hard. 33 years in the dating scene, on and off, take it but still a long time and you it's taking you to this point where you're saying dating's a, a, a fucking it's a disaster there are still so many people out there that are finding what they think is love or finding a partner or a companion and you haven't so i'm just wondering have you truly like have you modified your approach over the years as you've gotten wiser and, and lived these experiences I feel like I've gotten wiser, but see, it's almost like a catch-22. I've gotten wiser. I'm more self-aware of who I am and what I want, but I'm also more, much more outspoken of it, and I take or will accept less bullshit. Mm -hmm. You guys have a great relationship. You've been in this dating scene for over 30 years. You've seen it all. It seems to me like you absolutely think it's atrocious. Obviously, you've written a book called Dating What the Fuck. So, yes. And now you finally found somebody, and yet... You're, it seems to me that if the relation, like the relationship is good for you, but it's like, oh, if it doesn't happen, then I'll go right back to that crazy dating scene that I can't stand. But it's okay. No, no, I never said I'd go back to the dating scene. You there is no way. No, mm -hmm. I would just continue focusing on my businesses because I'm just beginning to like blossom and flourish. And you would never dating date again. Would not be on my radar. You wouldn't worry about dating for a while. Correct. Do you want to be in love with somebody? I do. And do you want to be with somebody for the for the rest of your life? Can you see yourself being with someone for a long, long time when you're on your rocking chair at 80-some years old? Or is that just not that interesting to you? I'm going to be very honest with you. I do not know. You know, honestly, I can't even tell you how many people have said to me, you are so smart, you're single, never married, and no kids. And this is from people who are married with kids. Of you course. have the right idea. You've made the best choices. It's not all it's cut out to be. <laughs> You've made the best choices. I have heard that so many times. Well, the grass is always greener. People that are in their shoes want to be you and you want to be them. It's just the way it goes. I guess. I mean, yeah. I don't know if I want to be them. I don't necessarily, you know, I owned a home. I don't think, I don't know if I ever want to own a home again. I don't know if I want, I mean, I'm definitely not going to have kids now. I'm way too old. And that's not something I, you know, really ever get sad about. Maybe once in a while I think about it. But I have all these things. I want to get back in an RV. I want to travel the U.S. I want to promote my book. I want to do vendor events. I, I just have a lot of things I want to do. And if I had kids, I wouldn't be able to do what I want to do. Do you believe in monogamy? Definitely. You do? Yes. You would never cheat on your partner? I would not. That's very good. June 14th, episode 174 with Kimberly Pittman Schulz, Grieving Mindfully. You mentioned the family who lost their child, I think you said to a murder, who ended up getting on the road and just going and helping other people that have experienced the same thing. And that reminds me of, um, that reminds me of like the AA program, like the 12-step program where You've got your 11 steps, but you can't finish and really complete the circle to your 12th step, which 
I believe is is helping another alcoholic. And it's like you you can't truly start healing yourself until you're helping somebody else. That reminded me of that. So talk a little bit about about how to overcome grief by by helping others who have suffered similar losses. Oh, I love this question, Nate, because again, it's one of these things I kind of discovered after I had been experiencing it personally and working with other people to do it and hadn't really thought about it this way. But giving to others, whether that's philanthropically, I've worked with you know philanthropies, it could be literally giving resources to create a scholarship or something, but it can also be random acts of kindness. It can be volunteering your time. It can be you know just listening to people that are struggling with something that you feel like you may still be struggling with, but you might just be one or two steps ahead of them. And by sharing what you've experienced or simply being a witness, I can't tell you how often simply being someone who listens and witnesses what is going on in a person's life, their lost story, what they're experiencing and feeling can, without even trying to fix or help or even necessarily support, just being there can be so therapeutic. So for me, I discovered this through my career, a very long career in philanthropy, that um, when we give to others, and again, it doesn't have to be the money piece. It can be other ways that we give of ourselves, our talents, as well as our treasures, our time. Um, it really helps us be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And it, I think what it also does, I call it being an avatar for our loved ones. Um, for me, and I know many others, part of that giving is living for the other person. So when I think of those families who lost kids in Flight 800 or spouses in Flight 800 um, back in the mid-90s, you can't bring them back. But the idea that some other person's young child is going to get a chance to go to college and pursue a college dream that your child didn't get to do is surprisingly healing. It doesn't fix anything really, Nate, but it helps you feel like some little part of that person you love and you is doing is trying to make some little tiny piece of good out of something that's pretty awful. July 20th. Episode 179 with Al Cleveland, Seeing the Light in a World of Darkness. Because I can't imagine, if I put myself in your shoes and I say, this has been going on now for two, three years, whatever it is, I'm still the prime suspect, one of several prime suspects in this case. They're not looking at anybody else. And if they are, they're not really doing anything about it. They're, they're focusing on me and these other guys and uh, I'm trying to live my life in New York, but my life is now, I'm 20, 21 years old, I'm on hold. I'm on hold, I know that I'm eventually facing this, this prosecution. I'm just trying to understand how you go to bed at night, how you wake up in the morning and, and, and live life still during those times. Do you remember those feelings? I know, you know what? I never had anybody like focus on this part of the journey, Nate. This is a first, I don't know where you're going with this, or uh, you know what's attracting you here, but uh, I'm kind of taken off guard. You know? <laughs> but, no, uh, no worries, no worries at all. Uh, this is the type of stuff that we know the story. We could read the story. It's the stuff behind. How do you how do you handle? How does a human being handle such a devastating situation? I oh, mean, yeah. I can get choked up. I can get choked up even thinking about it for you, Al. Suck, man. Suck, man. You know, like I just can't imagine what that must have been like your parents i mean how, they've got this son that they know is innocent 
That jury comes walking out, though, Al. I mean, is your is your heart palpitating? Are you like, are you just like, what is this? Is real life? I can't believe this is about to happen. I mean, yeah. Are you? Do you feel like you can't breathe? And what what is that? What is that feeling like? This this is something that no human being should have to endure. Yeah, <clears throat> I was I was so tense, man. I, re I remember balling my fist up and not even knowing it, and then the co-attorney that had me, that was there with me, she just like rubbed me on my back, like, dude, like, it's gonna be okay, calm down, right, you know, and and um, yeah, so when the jury came in, I just, I told the judge, like, when he, he told me guilty, when he read guilty, the, the voice from my mom screeched, like, it just took a big chunk out of her, and I just asked the judge, you mean, Life, life. Like he sent, he sends me to life. It wasn't like a number. You have life. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm gonna spend the rest of my life here? Oh. So you got life. I'm like, I didn't do this though. August sixth, episode one hundred and eighty-one with Bernie Marino, Ohio's future senator. So you versus, let's fast forward. It's twenty twenty-two, November. You versus Tim Ryan. How are you going to get it done? How are you going to get it done? Oh my God, that's no. Uh, listen, I don't is think this, is that a granted, softball question for you? Is that's that a, a softball? That's a, that's a softball because here's <laughs> the thing: if if things were fair, if it was a fair competition, I'd beat him by ninety points. Okay, but here's the thing: the media is going to give him all of the passes in the world. They're gonna they're gonna say all kinds of terrible things about me, praise him like crazy. So they're gonna make it an unfair fight. But here's a guy who's done nothing his entire life, like literally nothing. He has been an expense to the taxpayers his entire life. He has never created any opportunity beyond the paycheck that he's gotten. This is a guy who's been in office literally as long as he could have gotten a job. He could not be employed anywhere else. And he has zero track record. Votes 100% of the time with Nancy Pelosi and AOC. Has failed his constituents. Couldn't even keep the one General Motors plant that he had in his district. Lost that to Mexico. Uh, well, and then brings in- That was your internship yeah, days, right? Yeah, and, and so he loses his one factory. His, he lost his home county in his last election. The people who know him best don't like him, right? He is a guy that just is cliche and repeats cliches and, and, and has, it has no track record at all. So it'll be a very, very, very uh, uh, good and, and, and contrasting uh, election to have me against him. I know I'm the candidate who could best defeat him uh, because I, I have the opposite. I have a proven track record of actually accomplishments for the people of Ohio, even for the people of his district. Uh, that he has uh, failed to do. So uh, I look forward to relishing uh, those debates with him. There's a guy who's got zero substance. Uh, he'd be like that 80s commercial, Where's the Beef? He's that big bun with a tiny little beef. <laughs> All sizzle, no steak. That's what I always say. Exactly, exactly. All sizzle, no steak. You're electable, you're, you're, you're likable, you're successful, and you know how to connect to people. That's what people need again. They need to feel connected. doesn't matter what side of the aisle on you. There's a bunch of people that are in the middle. You know that that that's those are the people that you're gonna pull over. So uh, maybe we should get a, a little theme song started for you. Remember, Bernie, Bernie, oh yeah, the Senate We can do something like that, right? There you go. There you go. August eighteenth, episode one hundred and eighty-three with Jeremy Sherman. Don't be a butthead. And perfect safety atop 
all the other alternatives. This would be the alternative to doubt or self-doubt. Would just be to say, I can do anything I want by faking. That is the wild card. It's basically a wild card. I can do anything I want. And whatever I do is always the best. That's the trump card. So it's a wild card, trump card formula. And it's super easy to play it as long as you are a, a decent actor who can you know can get all theatrical about whatever you claim to believe uh you can fake it um and convincingly and and as long as you can get away with it you'll just keep on doing it so trump bot is the term it's basically fake trump cards played robotically mm. i've been to trump rallies they're exactly like um heavy metal concerts and people, it's cosplay. People get. I went to one in Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, people get all dressed up. They go in. They're having a festival. They're laughing at all the fools outside them, just like at a metal concert. Uh, they're they're singing along with the lyrics. They're not actually paying attention to what the lyrics mean. They just sound hella bravado. So they they like them. The only difference between a heavy metal concert and a Trump rally is at the end of the heavy metal concert, people find their cars and go back to reality. And at a Trump rally, they 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 go away saying, um, my. You know, this fantasy was more real than reality, but we have to take them with a return ticket to reality, secure in our heart pockets. We have to come back. Yeah, but you, you, you're, you're, you're throwing, you're thro- the, you know, but we all do need those fantasies. Yes, but you're throwing, you're throwing the the Trump people under the bus for going to the rally. But what about the people that rallied for Biden and uh, the the families that are that are stuck no, in I, Afghanistan? No, I'm, I, no, I'm not to, to say throwing them under the bus makes it sound like it's a moral violation. No, I'm just I made perfectly clear what I'm talking about here, which is if the if the if the you can only say, well, what about them? And I will answer that directly. No, the people who go to a Biden rally do not come away thinking. I mean, most of them don't. I know, you know, I I, I live in Berkeley, California. I know all sorts of leftists. I've lived with leftists all my life, and I know that there are plenty of jerks among them. Um, you know, total total butthead. But what I'm talking about, the distinction I'm making, isn't about what someone claims to believe. It's about whether people go back to reality afterwards. People are, people are going to reality so now, aren't they? I perfectly fine to engage in any of that stuff. I think that a Trump rally would be perfectly fine. No different from all sorts of ways that people get their yayas out. They go to mega churches and think they're wonderful and, and God's chosen. And uh, But the, the, the question for me is what you do afterwards. Whether you afterwards, you get back to reality and recognize that it was a fantasy, or whether you... Um, Go out there and pretend that you now have a bigger reality than reality. Yeah, I got to tell you, Jeremy. Here's why. Jeremy, I got to tell you, I think there's a lot of people right now. The only issue, the only rule in life is adapt to reality or die. Right. I think there's a lot of people right now, Jeremy, wishing... Keep on, uh, returning to reality. I think there's a lot of people right now, Jeremy, that, that voted for Biden that, that wish they were at the Trump rally uh, at the concert at this very moment in time. I have to tell what do you, you. Say? So, I think there's a lot of people that voted for Biden that wish they could escape their reality and go back to that uh, heavy metal concert. Uh, that's fine. You and I, I, it sounds like we probably are on, uh, we have uh, different approaches to this, but um, uh, that's that's totally fine. That's, that's your opinion about it. I happen to know a bunch of Biden supporters and know none of us would like to go to a Trump rally, which is what you said first. Um, would you like uh, to go to uh, Afghanistan? We, 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 we think he was a disaster. Would you like um, to go to Afghanistan, Jeremy? That's all. Jeremy, would you like to and go to Afghanistan today? Because reality, it doesn't matter. All it was was trumped up Trump cards. Hey, would you like to be in Afghanistan today? 
you know, you could ask all these points and questions you want. I hear what you're trying to do. You want to affirm your belief. No, I'm asking you, you your right opinion. cherry picking a fact here and there. That's not interesting to me. I'm paying attention to a broader question than that. Well, my question is just about you, you your 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 you come uh, onto this you come you came onto my podcast Biden is just as you, bad you, as Trump. That's you came you came ahead. you came onto this <laughs> sir you came onto my podcast and you started getting political so I'm asking you the other side of it the other side and of it. you don't you like the questions more clear about what you mean by the other side of it well you're throwing out Trump and and the Trump bots so, you're, so I think what you're accusing me of is a bias. That I have a bias. Well, that and you I have an agenda for look sure. At one side of this—that's what you're saying. Cut him all the slack okay. in the world. And let, why? Because because they're Trump wannabes. Who right. wouldn't Let's, want let, to play all right. fake Trump all right. cards all the time? Listen, that be, listen. And that'll be true once again if he pandered to the left the way he panders to the right. Totally the sure. same thing. Sure. It's about assholes. Let, it's not about. It's not about. Um, and and policy. they're and they're everywhere. August twenty third, episode one hundred and eighty five with Eric Golubitsky and Jeremy Torchinsky. Live a life of zero doubt. Whatever vice. Whatever right? vice and addiction Whatever you, you know is yeah. not good for you is hard to break, and it's hard to stop thinking about. It's hard to to um, to turn that corner. And he just was like, man, you don't know how good it feels to when, you know, there is no hangover. That's what he and said there last is time no, he was here. And there is no... There is <laughs> it sounds no, freaking awesome, man. It sounds yeah, great. So, yeah, so some of the things that I, back then, thought I could live, couldn't live without, right. now I can't even imagine life with, ever. You don't think you'll ever go back to having a drink? I don't know why I would. I really don't. I, I, I do, Man, laying on the couch all morning and late into the afternoon, not feeling well. Why would I do? Why would I ruin my five a.m. time to myself, journaling? Man, I feel a million. Uh, a million dollars is is too little. Like, right. man, why would I do that to myself? The emotional rewards that you've been able to accomplish in this short period of time, because it's still you're coming up on one year. Yeah. The, the emotional rewards, it's not worth the risk of losing that feeling, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. So the emotional death, yeah. right? So this, 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 again, the zero doubt now in myself that I don't, I'm not going to drink too much. I'm not going to be obnoxious. I'm not going to say the wrong things. I don't have to apologize to anyone the next day. I don't have to lay on the couch all day and, and recover. I, I, Man, I can be dependable. I can be to myself, to that confidence that that um, you know. I, I talked with my friends um, uh, in the past, and I and I said, you know, like a business didn't work out, and you know, I'm drinking, and and I just go, man, I I just feel like at some point when I you know built my house and I have three kids and wife, and everything is amazing, right? And they're in the number one school system, and and then hockey and man my life is so amazing. I, I I had this like crown right I felt like I had a crown and then in the last I don't know how many years it just felt like I lost my crown mm. wow and that's not a good feeling right you're just not that guy that you were maybe in your 20s and your early 30s and you're just invincible and I'm gonna crush life and whatever else and that's where that's where um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say deterioration happens, but it just 
felt that way like less and less confident less and less about myself less true to myself less um authentic yeah. as a as, as a human being and as an asset to my family my friends etc you could have lost it all you could, could have lost your family you know, you, you know, Eric, one your more. story's big. Be, your story's big because it proves that literally anybody can do this. That's so true. That's so true. I mean, no, no offense to Eric, but Eric was in a bad. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You know? and, and myself too. Like my my story proves that anyone can do it too. You know, drinking also for 25 years, right. being that guy that was hungover on the weekends, gambling, and stuck in a career that I didn't enjoy. Right to be able to pull out of that in a very short period. That's and then, priceless. And then, anybody, affect, anybody, anybody and then affect others. So and affect fast. others, right. The Inspire snowball effect. And effect. Yes. It's, yes. You guys would not be able to affect others had you not hit some yeah, rock yep. bottom moments. September 1st, episode 187 with Dr. Malcolm Brahms. Age is just a number. 101. I mean, that's such an incredible feat. And it looks like you're sitting there. I don't know. It looks like the kitchen's in the background or something thereabouts. Talk yeah, to us a little true. bit. Where, you, you, do you live by yourself still? I do, but I do have aides that cover me for 24 hours. When you look back at life, you're at a point in your life now where obviously you've gone longer than 99.9% .9 of people. When you look back at life, is there anything that at this point you look back and say, I wish I would have done this? And if so, what would that be? No, I think... Uh, that which I desired to do when I was young, I completed uh, and uh, happy uh, to continue to uh, be able to communicate, yes. So you're just, ex you're so pleased with exactly, you, you did everything that you had hoped to do in life. And more. And more. What I'm curious to learn from you is at, at 101 years old, are you scared of death at this point in your life? Not scared, but uh, knowing uh, it will end at any particular time in the near future. And does that does that does that change over the course of time as we get older as human beings? Does that mentality? I, I'm a father of young children. You at one point were a father of young children as well, and then you go through your adult life and you see your kids getting older, and then. I assume you might have grandchildren and you continue to progress in your life. What I'm curious to know is does the, does the fear of death, if there was, I think we all kind of have it somewhere inside of us. Um, does the fear subside as you continue to get older? No, I don't fear it, but I hope it ends uh, uh, on an immediate and not a prolonged manner. September 8th. Episode 189 with Dr. Francis Yahia. Let consciousness lead the way. Now, who's the in, who's in charge when you're in a cult? Is it your parents or is the cult leader ultimately the final decision maker for you, Francis? The cult leader decided it all. So one wow. of the things, and I'm sure it's different. I don't know if you're a parent, but I am. I can't imagine relinquishing when my children were small power to this third person that wasn't myself or their father so i i can't speak to what my parents felt um i've heard some things i've interviewed some people that have left and you feel as if 
you can make it safer for your children, for instance, or you can prevent them from having a bad choice or a bad life or making a bad decision in love. And I think that all parents would want if they had access to that, as many people might seek psychics and mediums for that same reason, wouldn't keep their child from being protected, right? But ultimately, being the person that was sort of handed over to her, that caused me a lot of trouble and and a lot of healing that I had to do, understanding the state of mind of my parents that they thought they were helping, but in essence, weren't. Mm. So it's a different, like I said, psychology being the child versus being the parent. I can see as a parent that you would want help for your child if you thought that they would need it, but I, I don't understand handing over you know, complete sort of authority over your child that, that I, wow. I never really that's, reconciled. That's incredible. Well, that's absolutely incredible. I could never imagine that either. Um, are your parents still alive, either of them? They are. Both of my parents are alive. They left the cult. They're wonderful. My parents are absolutely wonderful people. Um, we've had lengthy conversations. You know, my parents were very young when they met her. Very, very young. Are your parents remorseful for for having put you guys into the situation when you talk to them now? I mean, we, I do. I talk at length with my parents about it. I, I see my parents weekly for dinner, and I don't know if remorse is the word. It's more about you know an understanding. The same reason that that I left, they realized that this wasn't a supportive environment. Are they angry at themselves? Do you think that they that they kicked themselves looking back? I don't know, and I really have not had that level of conversation with them. What I understand about parents overall, and like I said, we have children to meet our needs and to love us and not the other way around. Not that parents don't love us, but that unconditional love that we, we think we're supposed to get is, is not true. So I wasn't seeking sort of a, you know, tell me you were wrong and, and a forgiveness. I, I, I worked that through in my own spiritual journey. So they have to understand what happened to them and, and what made them choose that. So that's not really my place, but that we have extensive conversations about it. Absolutely. October 11th, episode 194 with Zach Barris and Ed Reynolds. Relationships matter. We met this group of guys, not going to mention any names here. Um, you know, we're, we're working on some deals with them right now. And one time I couldn't go meet with them. And he goes, he steps right in and goes, I'll take care of it. I'm going to go meet with them. If I wouldn't have gone that night, there would be no relationship right now. Mm. You know, and, and all of a sudden, all these deals are starting to materialize with these guys. They're great guys. You know, potential for some really large deals with the, with them. This is commer- on the commercial. Yeah, this, this is, is on the yeah, multifamily, commercial, even more than, this is something big. We've got something, you know, huge in the line for a potential downtown project. Okay. I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking massive transformative project downtown. And that's always exciting. Ed, wouldn't have, could use that. Ed wouldn't have gone to the one meeting, it'd be over. There, there'd really? be no relationship. No. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, there's none. And it's just... So it, the relationships, again, it's really, well, all about the relationship. The, the best always. part is, too, is I can sit there now. I feel comfortable enough and to not micromanage. If he's got another meeting to go to, he goes. doesn't need to tell me. I don't care. You know, it's the same thing. I've gotten to that point. We used to go to every single meeting together. And now it's that we're getting so busy. He can handle his own. Sure. I can handle my own. We talk every day. We stay on the same page. There's certain meetings we go together. I mean, I'd still say the most important ones we're at together. But like I said, if it's the case now and he can't go and he's got something else to do, I'll handle it. What's an example upset. of an important meeting? Give, uh, give a little something. For, for example, you know, we've got a deal over on, we just closed a deal over with fellow 
you know, former orthodontist, uh, lives in Orange, Richard Armstein. Okay. Dr. Armstein. So, you know, for example, I've been meeting with Richard lately. Ed's been studying for his insurance licensing exam um, so we can get into that game. You know, we've got a lot of clients who need it, so we've just been working with that in a joint partnership with a large company downtown. And so I've been working, we've been working on aggregating land in the uptown area close to the clinic. And we're working on our secondary sites now. We just broke around a 42-unit uh, apartment complex last week. We have plans for some much much larger buildings in the area. But, you know, it, it's when it's coming down walking neighborhoods, he's normally on every trip with me. I'll start handling the other stuff, you know, just keep him in the loop and that's all. And he's sitting there dealing with our partners out in Chicago right now, which and it's funny this before he even worked with me. I took him to Chicago on one of our first trips on our first trip together. I said, listen, I think it's a trip you should come on. You should meet these guys. If we're going to work together, let's see how everything plays out. I get a call back from our clients in Chicago and our clients, you know, in Columbus too, who we went with, we went with the guys from shift capital and it was uh, Jeff Hireman who used to play for the Buckeyes, okay. played for the yeah, Broncos I mean, in the league for, I don't know what, five years. Something like that. Super Bowl champion. Yeah, and, mm. and NCAA championship, too. And he just started with Shift Capital. And you just see the relationships. I mean, it's people. It's about yeah, people it's love, relationships. You know, people love dealing with the former athletes, current athletes. So when they hear, oh, you played in the league, it's, it's, yeah, it sets off a different vibe. Point. Yeah. It sets off a different vibe. It opens up completely new relationships. And when you're dealing with large amounts of money, especially, too, you know, with clientele, you know, they go, sometimes you can't get these guys to bite an inch. And then all of a sudden they go, you're going to be the former Browns player. Okay, let's be for lunch. Really? You know, it's, it's funny. It, it's pretty funny That's sometimes. Really I tell him that all yeah, the time. He does. He does tell me, though. He does. He, I'm not walking into stuff I don't know. He'd be like, hey, man, like, they want to meet because you're coming. October 18th, episode 195 with Jason Earl. How my mother's suicide set the stage for my entrepreneurial path. It sounds like you were able to handle this devastating loss in, in a pretty... Um, beneficial way or the the outlook that you had because you were still in school. I mean, as a 14-year-old kid, I'm trying to get into the psyche. What was the feeling like when, when your mother was no longer here? What were those first days, weeks, and months like for you? That's a really good question. Um, there was a huge amount of denial at first, um, but for some reason, in instantly, I within two weeks, I had this, I had an understanding and it wasn't necessarily uh, that I just had an understanding that she needed to cut ties with me because I was the only thing holding her back. And so she was looking for something. She was looking for a fight. Um, and there was nothing that I was going to do to prevent that. If, if it wasn't that day, it would have been another day. If it wasn't that circumstance, it would have been another. And so thank the heavens that I had the, the insight to recognize that because that's her life. Um, and, and I still feel the same way I do that I did two weeks after she died, which is an immense amount of gratitude and an immense amount of, of, of love. You know, this is a woman who's obviously in a tremendous amount of pain. But since that event, I have, I have a galvanized sense of optimism, which is hard to explain. But when I talk to other people who have lost uh, family members to suicide, who've looked at this sort of from a, from a you know, zoom out as much as you can and look at the big picture. Um, most of the people that I know that have been able to, to, to work through this stuff have a similar view. November 8th, episode 197 with Carrington Smith, blooming through trauma. Because I want people to understand what it's like to be raped. And I take people through that journey. Um, take, us, take us through it. 
what 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 what, ha- what happened? What happened? Yes. So, um, I went off to college at Washington State University. I was in a sorority. I was a tryout there, and we had um, at Washington State the homecoming is incredibly important. They have these homecoming games where fraternities and sororities pair up, and they build uh, lawn displays. They have. Um, Olympic style games. They have a series of parties all leading up to the big football game. So it's a huge week long event. And that year we had teamed up with the Sigma News. And I went over to the Sigma New house with about four other tridelts to build lawn displays. And after a couple of hours of doing that work, uh, we were invited inside to have a beer. And the keg was upstairs. And so I was with four other girls. Um, and uh, one of the Sigma News handed me a cup of beer and uh, pulled me into his room. And the next thing I remember is the thunderous noise of his door being kicked in, which kind of woke me up. And I realized I was naked on the floor, that he was inside me. And there was a whole crew of guys jostling to see in the room and like making cat calls and whatnot. And so I turned my head to avoid being seen. I like kind of came to and um, and then he bolted the door and proceeded on. And I, I walked through, you know, some details about all that happened. Um, one of the things that after I went back to my sorority house the next morning, I confided in a sorority sister about what happened to me. And she said, first of all, she said, are you sure... Like, are you sure, like, uh, you didn't want to just have sex with him? And I'm, like, trying, you know, walking her through what happened. Like, no, this was rape. Um, And then she says, well, just be really careful how you handle it because there had been a girl, um, another girl at Washington State who had been gang raped the year before. And she got kicked out of her sorority because they called her, they labeled her a slut. But she had been raped, and she actually... Um, you know, went to prosecute this group of guys and instead she got kicked out of the sorority. And so she said, just be really careful. And I was in such a state in my life where I just was desperate to fit in. I was more concerned with, you know, what would happen to me, whether I would get kicked out of my sorority if I said anything. So I went to the student health center and when the doctor asked me, like looking at what, you know, my, the damage that had been done, he asked me if there was something I needed to tell him. And um, I said, I told him it was just rough sex. November 22nd, episode 199, with DC, the Brain Supreme Glenn, a different kind of thinker. Has your life gotten better, DC, since ni- the early 90s when things were unbelievably exciting for you? Looking looking over the last 28 years, has your life continued to get better since then? Yeah, because I'm still living. It's never too late, right? I could have became old and bitter the things that I went through. Right, but just keep fighting, and you get smarter, and you you develop this thing called experience and maturity. And some people don't develop that, right? Some people squander it. Some people become old and bitter. Some people just give up. You've you know, made it's hard to do. you've made a life being a one hit wonder, basically. And yeah. I, you know, and what better one hit to have than that? 1993, it goes to the top number two spot on the Billboard Hot 100. 
Mm-hmm. What was that? I mean, take us back. What what was that period of time like for you personally? That had to be wild. I mean, you know, we, we had fun, but I've been a DJ all my life. I've always but been come a on, man. Right. Come on, you're, you're, you're number two on you're number two on the Billboard Top 100. That had to be yeah, but, shocking. Okay, but I gotta explain it to you, right? See, I'm different. That's why. I'm, that's what I mean when I say I'm different. I didn't care about you know. Of course, you want to be a rock star. That's your dream and all that. But because I worked at the clubs, I watched all those stars come in the club. I remember I was in Atlanta at the beginning of the Renaissance in Atlanta. I'm in Atlanta when Dion signed. I'm in Atlanta when you know Jermaine and Bobby Brown and. Uh, uh, L.A. and Babyface and all those get to town and make Atlanta what it is now. I was there at the beginning. So I know all these people. And I see all these stars and they start their labels and all these stars coming to the club every night because I got the hottest club in the city. And I watched how they treat people. Right? Not all of them, but some of them. And when stars become stars, they act like stars. And sometimes they treat the people that help them get where they are like crap. And I vowed that they would, that would never happen to me because I watched when their record wasn't hot no more, the same people they dissed revel in their demise. Mm. And those people never came back. Right? So when all this happened for me, it was, for me, it was more validation of all the hard work I put in. November 29th, episode 200 with Dr. Abigail Lev. Society's mental health and personality disorder problem. So, uh, uh, most personality disorders are kind of um, they are interpersonal problems, uh, meaning they're relational. They harm the person you're with more than yourself, and they're also uh, issues with empathy. So, somebody with narcissistic personality disorder may be very high on cognitive empathy which is understanding it in your head, but is very low on uh, emotional empathy, on warm empathy. There's cold empathy, understanding how a person is feeling in your head, and warm empathy, actually caring uh, and empathizing and feeling what they're feeling. Mm. So somebody with uh, NPD is actually very high on cold empathy. They're very good at reading people and knowing what they're thinking and what they're feeling. But if you if you look at studies, it shows that physiologically they don't get impacted by it. Wow. That's that's interesting. I've never heard it that way before. That's very very peculiar. But it makes I think yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So they're able to uh, understand how the other person is feeling. They just don't give a shit. Correct. Correct. <laughs> they just, they, it doesn't. It doesn't affect them one way or another. And now, if you're working with somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, the higher they are on the spectrum, the more therapy will not be helpful to them. So, for example, there's also research that shows that people higher on the spectrum with malignant narcissism, which is so, psychopathy or sociopaths, uh, actually end up doing worse. Uh, after therapy they become more manipulative they're more likely to recommit crimes why is that what's what's cause, what's causing that to be better abby what's causing that is it is it the fact that they've just gotten a plethora of of data and information from their psychologist and now they're using it to their advantage to be even more extreme 
Correct. It's because they have very high cognitive empathy, right? And because they have very high cold empathy, they could learn and perfect that skill without actually uh, having right the the compassion. December thirteenth, episode two hundred and two, with Brian Bayliss, renewing life and restoring hope. Um, ended up meeting with a friend who was in AA, and I didn't really want to go to AA. I mean, I wasn't one of those losers, um, and uh, but. Because you thought you know, that those I, people were that you thought that those at that point in your life you thought those people were weak. Exactly, that's the exact word I was going to use. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but I did go to a meeting, and I remember not shaking hands, and you know, not wanting to really be involved with anybody. And I get there right before the meeting started and run out of there. You said you were going there. You got you hit a rock bottom moment that ultimately mm-hmm. allowed you to like, all right, I need to make a change. What, what was that exact day? May 13th, 2014. And what happened on May 13th? Um, I decided I didn't want to be here anymore. And, uh, but I am. So that was my, that was my low. Mm. And, uh, you know, I was hospitalized and, um, and got put into treatment immediately. And uh, because and you survived whatever you tried, any harm you tried to do to yourself, by the exactly. grace of God, you survived. And that was like, yep. we got to get him into the hospital. And right. That was and the first so, day of the, of the, the next, this, this rest of your life, like they say. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it was, I mean, I struggled mightily. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, I was blessed with having an incredible amount of support. And I have an incredible sponsor in AA. Um, I have an incredible wife and children and friends. And, you know, I could barely fall down with so much support. But I was too ashamed to see anybody. I really didn't see anybody for months with the exception of one person. So, How, how do you handle those first couple months? It's got to be extremely dark. It's embarrassing. You have shame, you have guilt, remorse, all these negative feelings. How do you, ha- and now you're not able to turn to the one thing that was getting you through for the past year. Uh, what are those days, weeks, and months like at the beginning? They're terrible. Um, you know, I get out of bed around noon. Um, today I get up at four forty-five. Um, I, uh, I struggle to put a smile on my face. I, you know, my wife was very, very worried about me. She said, how are you? One to 10. I'd always lie and say eight. Mm-hmm. It was about a negative three still. Oh, um, and, uh, but I struggled and, you know, I fought and, you know, then I got back into AA. Um, and this time I was going to do it right. I ran my own program the first time around. Uh, I decided there's smarter people than me out there. You ran the BB program, not the AA program. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> so this time which you were taking me, it seriously. Which got me an FF. This time you were taking it seriously and you were going through the true 12. It's a 12 step uh, yep. program. And of yeah. course, isn't the 12 step the most meaningful? It is to me. 
Um, you know, I, I and we as a company believe in all pathways to recovery. Um, but for me, you know, AA is the way. And, you know, come seven years later, I still go to five meetings a week. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was a big part of helping me, you know, save my life, change my life, um, become somebody that I'm, you know, I'm proud of today. The Optimal Life.